main message today uh, by Mr. Curtis Whiteley, uh, uh, labeled Church Idols. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is on another chilly, a little bit gloomy, but for the most part, beautiful Sabbath day, of course. And as Ben mentioned, the title of my message today is Church Idols. Now, last week we started our Bible study, as we continue today, on 1 Corinthians. And in that discussion of the first part of the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, we, we looked at how Paul was dealing with a group of people in, that had apparently began relying on who they were aligned with. If you remember, we even went into it a little bit today, that some were going around saying that I am of Apollos, or I am of Paul. There's even a section in the letter that we read last week where Paul says that I thank God, genuinely, that I didn't baptize most of you because you might be going around saying that I was baptized in the name of Paul. And a part of that discussion that we had, as a part of that, we talked about how in church history, including our own tradition, there is sometimes a temptation, if you will, to be aligned or to maybe think that in order to be with God or be following God, that we have to be aligned with maybe a certain person, a certain tradition, or a certain idea. Now, I think that we can look at many examples of this to be the case, both in church history, as I mentioned, and, of course, in our own church tradition. And so, in thinking about that discussion, I was reminded of an article that I read several years ago from a website called churchleaders.com, and it was entitled, Three Common Idols in in Church. The author of it was an individual by the name of Eric Geiger, And I remember even kind of giving a message on part of this years and years ago, but I was compelled to review some of the things in this article because I thought it was relevant to our Bible study that we had last week. And as we have seen church history continue, this seems to be an ever-increasing issue among churches, especially, I would say, among the tradition that we have come out of, the Church of God. And so in this article, Geiger identifies three most common, according to him, of course, idols in the church. Now, it's kind of strange to think of idols in church because they don't really go together. But we know that idolatry is not just something of the past. It's not just something that is a physical, like, you know, an actual shrine of something. Of course, there are those idols But there are many different types of idols. And the three idols that he identified was the idol of place, the idol of the past, and thirdly, the idol of programs. The idol of programs. Programs in the church. Now, if we were to go and look at just what the definition of an idol is, according to our English language, I just went and did a quick one. On Google, and it says, an idol is an image or representation of a God used as an object of worship. Now, that's the most typical way that we think of idols. 
We think of someone actually taking the idol, it being physical, an image of something. When we look at the Hebrew word as well as the Greek word, we get the same ideas. They come out to bring out some sort of object that is in the form or likeness of a deity or of a god or something that they're adoring. And so when we read the Bible, we see that the Bible is full of idols. All the way from the very beginning, we see idolatry. We see idolatry even whenever God calls Israel out of Egypt. The most common, of course, probably being the golden calf of Exodus, the most popular example. Maybe when we think of the people of God falling into idolatry. We see the Philistines, they have their God, all the different Canaanite people groups, they have different gods that they worship. We see the nation of Israel go into the promised land, and of course they fall into idolatry. And I was looking and, and studying this, I came upon this, you know, this chapter in Judges, the middle of the, the book of Judges, verse 6, chapter 10. After Israel goes into the promised land, we know that there's much more history after this. We hadn't even established a monarchy yet, a kingdom or anything like that. But it says in Judges 10, verse 6, Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again. Again. And served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Unfortunately, too often, that becomes a theme in Israel's history. And we look to them actually taking the gods of the pagan world and putting them up on a pedestal and joining in in that worship. We don't often, though, think of it in the other way. We don't often think of it where Israel took the things or something that God himself gave them and turned it into an object of worship, an object of idolatry. And that's what we're going to quickly look at. Let's go to Numbers, the 21st chapter, because we read the Bible, we understand it, we see Israel go into all of this idolatry, but there's an interesting story in Numbers 21 when we compare it to stuff that happens later on in life, and just spoiler alert, it's an example of how even the things that God has given us can become objects of worship or idolatry. So Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9 is what we're going to read. This is the story of Moses and the fiery or the venomous serpents in the wilderness. It says in verse 4, Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained? There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. Or what's it? What is it? You know, in the Hebrew, as was mentioned earlier in our Bible study. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses 
prayed for the people. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. And all who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of the bronze and attached it to a pole. And then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. This is a unique story. We very seldom see God operate in this manner. Now we see that this has a common, you know, even in our own culture today, you see an ambulance and you see what the image of a snake on a pole, wrapped around a pole. It goes back to this this story here in the book of Numbers. So we have to ask the question, why did God do this? Why didn't he just drive them out? The snakes, that is. Why didn't he just remove the object that was a problem for them instead of come up with this unique formula that he did? Now, one thing we need to notice is that nowhere, nowhere In the Bible, in this story or anywhere else, does Moses or God encourage the Israelites, or anybody else for that matter, to bow down to this object? It wasn't to be an object of worship. It wasn't to be an idol, of course. But it was to be really two things. Number one, it was to be a sign of the curse that Israel or the Israelites were facing. Because of the rebelliousness. To be reminded of their troubles with the fiery snakes. And realize that God brought those upon them because of their rebelliousness. And secondly, a sign of faith. Because you had to look upon that snake and believe. That is, that pole with the snake on it. Believe that you would be healed. In other words, it was a reminder that their healing that the delivering came from none other but God himself. Not other gods, not Moses, but the Lord God Almighty. And later on in the Bible, we see there's a connection that Jesus makes to himself with this object in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Now we all know John 3, 16, most popular scripture probably there is, when you talk about the one that's quoted the most. But right before he said that, you know, for the Lord loved the whole world, for God loves the whole world, for God so loved the whole world, he says this to Nicodemus in his discussions with him in verse 14 of John 3, and he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, when Jesus was lifted up, what did he become? He became the curse for us. Jesus compares himself to the serpent as being lifted up, taking upon himself the curse, and that only through looking to him, as the Israelites looked to the serpent in the wilderness, Could they be healed? Could they truly live? Could they truly be given eternal life? So when we skip down in this story, going back to the Old Testament and Israel, when we skip further down along in Israel's history, 
we read that the children of Israel, as I alluded to earlier, eventually would take this symbol and use it inappropriately. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Which shows that when God gave this, he never intended for it to be an object of worship. 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Talking about, uh, <clears throat> yeah, verses 1. So it says, And it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, or Abby, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Now that's a pretty impressive statement when it comes to many of these kings, because not all of, this, all of them acted like this. Verse 4, he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it the Hushtan. And so in Israel's history, something that was given by God, not for an object of worship, not for an idol, they turned it in, of course, to an object of worship itself, into an idol. Apparently, the Israelites had become so entrenched with idolatry that even what had been given to them by God, this bronze serpent, became an object of worship. What is interesting is that as I was studying this and I was reading different things in history, I came across in one of my background commentaries by Craig Keener. He wrote the IVP background commentary on the Old Testament. He says this about what they called it. He says Nehushtan was possibly a name, of course, that was attributed to a deity. So they were using this object and attributing deity to it. But he says this, he says, Nehushtan appears to have been a deity of healing, especially of snake bites, and possibly considered an intermediary between Yahweh and the people. Now what caught my attention was when he said that it was possible, now we don't know 100% for sure if this is the way it was used, but there's some possible evidence that they used this object as an intermediary between Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, and the people. And what made this so interesting to me, as I was just thinking, is that that is so like us as human beings, even us Christians. We create, in this walk, intermediaries between us and God intermediaries between our life and God. Sometimes, and what I'm saying, we may look at certain things, maybe even subconsciously, is that that is the way to God. Sometimes maybe these certain things might be, and not necessarily everyone here or people here, but when we just look at Christianity and the way that humans operate, it's wear these clothes. You've got to pray this way. You've got to look this way. You've got to pronounce God's name in this particular way. You've got to sing these particular songs. 
We have to have the right church format. We have to pray in a certain way, as I mentioned. And the list goes on and on and on. It's so easy for us human beings, even in the Christian faith, with the carnality that we still have, to use intermediaries between us and God. We may not go to a priest and think that that physical priest and maybe confess our sins, but we may set things up that I have to be doing this in order to be a part of God's plan. Getting back to that article of the three different things, the first one I mentioned was the idol of place. Now, the way I interpret this is, is the idol of the church organization. We've all probably experienced this. It's no secret that many different church denominations have experienced this idea that their denomination is the truth. And it's the best truth. It's the most truth. And within our tradition, there's no secret that we have had our fair share of this very same thing. Many of us have probably perused websites of different offshoot Churches of God organizations that claim that they are the one true church. That maybe, in their minds, Herbert W. Armstrong was God's apostle. It was his church. And when he passed away, the apostleship, or the leadership, the place in which he decided, God that is, to put his name transferred into this other individual. We've all experienced that or seen that to some extent. And this reminded me, of course, of a popular passage in Matthew's Gospel that I was thinking about. We went over Matthew's Gospel just this past year in our Bible study. Let's go to Matthew, the third chapter. And we, we discussed this and we read this, but I want to kind of get into it a little bit. The context, of course, is John the Baptist. And it's a popular passage set of scriptures, John the Baptist, and he's, he's interacting with the current religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Matthew 3, verses 7 through 10, we read in verse 7, it says, but he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, and he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit, fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think, verse 9, and do not think, you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a very powerful thing that he said to these individuals, and they probably thought, Here's this crazy guy out in the wilderness, right, eating honey and locusts and all of these things, and he's baptizing people, and he's the one that is, you know, God's chosen to place his name, that he's really bringing truth, and we're the esteemed religious leaders of the day. You know, we went to Hebrew school, and we studied Torah and all of these things. But there's a twofold implication in this story. The first one was, is that it seemed to be that the attitude of being a mere descendant of Abraham was sufficient enough to grant them in the part of God's kingdom. Because they believed in a kingdom coming. They believed in a kingdom and a Messiah 
albeit it was a different way of thinking about it, God, in their minds, they probably wouldn't verbalize it this way, needed them. They, by whom were the descendant-wise of Abraham, of where the promises came through, they were a prerequisite of God's plan. For God's plan. That's the way they tended to think. But Abraham, that's why, that's why John the Baptist said, don't think to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Like we're automatic. God can raise up from these stones descendants of Abraham. Now there's no doubt, we would all believe this, the Bible is sure of this. There's no doubt that Israel, that God raised Israel up as the promised descendants of Abraham. And through Israel, God has chosen to carry out his plan of salvation. There's no denying that. But somewhere along the way, they focused more on who they were instead of who God was. They made themselves into the intermediaries, the gatekeepers, so to speak, between people and God. In the same way, through God's plan, God has established the body of Christ as his church. There's no denying that. But we, just like Israel, are not the intermediaries, the gatekeepers. We are not the gatekeepers or intermediaries of who is in that body. God's name is not a particular church. The body of Christ, the church, I know it's so easy. We think of church. We think of this church and that church and that church. There's one church in which the Bible describes. There's one church. Not a physical church in the sense of it's Tulsa Church of God or the Philadelphia Church of God or the First Baptist Church in Jinx, Oklahoma. Not that church. It's not like that. It's a living organism. We've all said that before. Worldwide body of believers throughout all of this, this, this entire globe that makes up the body of Christ. And of course, there are individual congregations. The church at Corinth was a part of the church. It was the church at Corinth, a group of believers in the city of Corinth, but it was a part of the Jerusalem Church of God, the Church of God at Ephesus, the Church of God at Galatia. It wasn't a you know, central location. That location of where God's placed his name, is, as was mentioned, is in our hearts. It's in the group of individuals that make up that body of Christ. Let's go to John chapter 4. I just threw this in here at the last minute because... I think it kind of goes along with this. The Samaritan woman at the, wa- at the well. There's this thinking, of course, where God's chosen to place his name, which was to some extent was biblical. God did place his name at the temple, at the tabernacle in Jerusalem, at a specific location during a period of time in Israel's history. But in verse 19 of John chapter 4, we see the woman said to him, that is the Samaritan woman, Sir, I perceive, you, perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. But again, that's the place, the the place in which you're supposed to go to get connected to God. 
that particular location. And Jesus' response in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship that you do not know. We know that we, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. And we know that as the, 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 the New Testament times unfolded, and Jesus is crucified, and he establishes his twelve disciples now become apostles and they go out and they start spreading the gospel that this is the time that has come that God he's always wanted his followers to worship in spirit and truth but now comes the time where he's delivered the spirit where his name isn't just in a particular location but is in every one of us in our heart and that tabernacle has now been made in our abode inside of us and so the idol of place obviously, can be a tempting thing within churches. I combine the second and third, the idols of the past and programs. The idols of the past and programs. And I have to admit, I myself am a sentimental person. I like tradition. I like the way things are. It's hard for me to let go of things. You can ask people in my family. I grew up and... When I was a young kid, my mom had to wait till I was out of the house before she could, you know, put a brand new bed in my room. I've probably told that story before. We are, as human beings, sometimes can be like this. It's a tendency. It's comfort. Comfort. Familiarity. Sometimes change is scary. Human beings are very interesting. We are. We are easily bored, but yet so often we are resistant to change. We're interesting creatures. People, of course, they can get in church, get stuck in the past and the programs in the church. We can get so wrapped up in how we have done things in the past that we sometimes take the things that are supposed to be tools to help facilitate our worship and set them up as instruments of worship in and among themselves. And I've already kind of alluded to this, you know, last week at part of our discussion in our Bible study. You know, I think, you know, uh, N.T. Wright in one of the questions was, what are some of the things that people in the church get divided over? And when I read that question, I was thinking, man, this, this is supposed to be like the study itself? I and mean, that's a huge question. We could, we could sit around all day long and talk about the things that the church gets divided over. But one of the things that we talked about was worship wars as they were called. And I mentioned in that Bible study, I said that, you know, 15, maybe 20 years ago, it really became a thing where you became, you know, you heard about this, this division in churches from the traditional worship style and the more contemporary. And so people would de deem them worship wars, you know, the way, the style of music and the style of the worship and things like that. And nowadays, when you, we drive down the road, you see a marquee, as was mentioned last week, You'll typically be driving, and maybe there's a church with a marquee that's electric, and it has, you know, the different marketing. There are different times. It says, like, you know, 9 o'clock traditional worship, 11 o'clock contemporary. So they kind of figured out a way around that, of course. So we see that this happens in churches, 
the way we do things, the, the way it used to be, the programs, the idol of past and programs, the types of music we select, the ways we choose to do ev evangelism and present our belief system. You must wear a suit to church. You got to wear the, you know, you, you can only read the King James Version of the Bible. The format of church services. Of course, again, who we follow. I'm not even, I'm not talking about doctrine. I'm talking about just typical, you know, form. What does our service look like? What does our, the way we do church look like? Traditions of our past, I believe, are important. They do play a role. But only if we continually recognize them as tools to help facilitate our worship, not the object of our worship, or setting them up as intermediaries on how we connect with God. We cannot get so attached to something that we feel like if we were to take it away, we would be breaking like one of God's commandments. Which we've all maybe experienced that before in times past. I know there's things that I'd probably, you know, be resistant to change, you know, in, in certain ways. Let's go to Matthew, the ninth chapter. We're going to read one more verse. This message today was meant to be a little shorter because we do have a little bit of a meeting after church, so, but I don't think, I think we're pretty much going to end right on time. So Matthew 9, the parable of the, the wineskins. We've all read this before. Chapter 9, it's a parable that Jesus presents after being questioned about fasting. He says in Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17, Then the disciples of John came to us saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom, the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskin breaks, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into the new wineskins, and both are preserved. And there's a lot of meaning in this and what Jesus is saying, but just to give you some background, during this time there was a tradition, especially among religious leaders and within the Jewish religion and faith, that there were certain days, I think Mondays and Thursdays is what I think, um, you know, traditionally has been ascribed as a practice during this time that they would fast. But Jesus broke the mold. The question we have to ask ourselves is there's something wrong with fasting? Of course not. Fasting is good. Fasting is something that's encouraged in the Bible. But it appears that the religious leaders in their tradition being so wrapped up in it that they began looking at the ritual of fasting twice a week among many other rituals that, that they practiced as becoming a litmus test of who were the true worshipers of God. And he gave these analogies of an unshrunk, you know, patch on an old garment. And I don't know much about garments and things like that, but if you take a brand new piece of cloth and, you know, try to patch it up on maybe an old pair of jeans or old cloth, well, those jeans are old and, you know, 
they've already shrunk and things like that, but the patch, new stuff, when it comes washed, it shrinks. Same thing whenever it comes to wineskins, those old wineskins and things like that, brittle. You put new wine in it, it's going to ferment more and more and expand, and it's going to destroy both the wineskin and the wine. And so, although we can differ, we can have different ideas of what Jesus is trying to say is, is that he was bringing the truth of God, and you couldn't take the truth of God and fit it into, because that's what they were wanting them to do, into the paradigm of their tradition. It wouldn't fit. You're going to run both. By trying to fit in the wine, the new wine, into old wineskins, it's not going to be new wine anymore. It's going to be wine on the ground. So in other words, if you take the truth that Jesus was preaching and try to pigeonhole it into the Jewish tradition of the day, you would end up ruining the truth that Jesus was preaching. You would twist it and turn it into something that it wasn't. Now I think that on this, we have to also realize that there is an equal danger to not get wrapped up in changing things just to be the most hip and trendy. Of course, I think that an idol can be made in a way, in that way as well, if we're just doing things just to appeal to the masses. Everything we do, whether it be in church, as individuals, should be completely wrapped up upon what helps us bring glory to God. Not what helps us be popular. Not what impresses people. It has to be about our relationship with God. Our filling ourselves up with Jesus Christ, the Son. And bringing glory to God and God alone. We cannot forget what our function is. And that is bringing glory to God by the connection we make with Him. So in closing... I want to close by kind of just quoting one of the comments that Geiger makes in his article. He says, Hezekiah broke the snake because the people were burning incense to it. They were worshiping a bronze snake. Tools for transformation can become objects of worship. In our sinfulness, we can make an idol of just about anything. In our sinfulness, we tend to make idols of things that are important to us. As the bronze snake that God used to bring healing, held by the leader of God's people during their liberation from slavery, became an object of worship. And so as we close here, we just have to remember that. And I want to pivot this to just as individuals. We, as our individual walk with God, thinking about things that we can sometimes put in place of our true worship for God. Think about things that maybe we've allowed to become an intermediary between us and God. Maybe we're, we hadn't even thought about it in that way. At the end of the day, it's all about our complete 100% focus that all blessings come from God, that our focus is on Him, that we don't serve anything else but God. And of course, with that, with serving God, means serving individuals serving people, serving each other, and things like that. So with that, let us just think about the potential idols that we may have in our life. Things that 
they're going to be different for each one of us as individuals as we progress, as we move forward in this life and on this walk and journey with God our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ.